This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. We have an exciting episode in store today. We're going to be talking a little bit about atrial fibrillation and then a little bit more about atrial fibrillation. John, what article do you have up for us first today? So first, we're going to be talking about catheter ablation in end-stage heart failure with atrial fibrillation. This was published by Sons et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine, August 2023. Yes, I saw this all over Twitter. Okay, so what was the research question? They wanted to know what is the role of catheter ablation in patients with symptomatic AFib who had end-stage heart failure. And why did this article catch your eye? I mean, we know this, but heart failure is common. Uh, But as with everything in medicine, there's really a spectrum with respect to disease severity. Uh, And there are patients who have end-stage heart failure where there are really considerations around, okay, like, would they be a transplant consideration? Uh, Would you think about an LVAD or do you need to change goals of care? There have been studies that have shown that in patients with CHF and symptomatic AFib, if they undergo catheter ablation, they have lower likelihood of death or worsening CHF, but they excluded these kind of end-stage patients. And so this trial was really done to look at the safety and efficacy among patients with end-stage heart failure and symptomatic AFib who were referred specifically to a specialized center that focused on heart transplants and implantations of LVADs. Okay. You, you know, you've caught my attention. Uh, what was the study design here? This was a single center, open label, superiority, randomized control trial. It was done at a single transplant center in Germany. I won't be able to pronounce the name of it, but they had do about 80 transplants a year. And since the clinic's inception in like the late 1980s, they've done about 3000 heart transplants. The patient population. So these had to be symptomatic patients with AFib. NYHA class two or higher from a heart failure symptom perspective and an EF of 35% or less with impaired functional capacity on a six minute walk test. And, you know, in addition to all this, they also had to be considered for transplant or LVAD. So, you know, you know, not good heart failure. All patients also had an ICD. Uh, Patients were randomized one-to-one to to catheter ablation with medical therapy versus medical therapy alone. They were followed every three months for the first year and then annually. Uh, The primary endpoint was a composite of death from any cause, implantation of LVAD or urgent heart transplant. And then there were a number of secondary outputting components from the primary, uh, death from cardiovascular causes, uh, and some other things as well. Um, with an analysis perspective, uh, they did do an intention to treat analysis. Uh, the original plan was for three years of data collection, but after about one year of enrollment, uh, the data and safety monitoring board reviewed the outcomes and recommended immediate cessation of the medical therapy alone trial, which is not to cut to the chase, but just to give you a heads up that they had to stop the trial abruptly. Okay. All right. And, you know, stopping abruptly either means it's a miracle or more often it is hurting people. Anyway, um, what did the patients look like? What was the table uh, one? So from 2020 until May 2022, 97 patients were randomized to the ablation arm and 97 were randomized to the medical therapy alone arm. The average age of patients was about 62 to 65 years of age. Most were men. The average BMI was 28. The majority of patients had an NYHA class three or higher. The majority actually had non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, kind of 60 to 62%. And uh, most were on the medications you'd expect. So, you know, majority were on a beta blocker, uh, ACE inhibitor ARB or salcubitril valsartan combo. Only 46 to 55% of patients were on a mineral corticoid receptor antagonist, and only about 25% of patients were on an SGLT2. When it came down to some other things, so ablation was performed in 81 of the 97 patients in the ablation group, which was 84%, but there was some crossover. And so 16 patients out of 97 in the medical therapy group, which was 16% of those patients, also went on to get ablation. 
Interesting. For some reason, I suspected or anticipated that patients would be much older when you're telling me about how terrible their heart failure is and, you know, end stage, et cetera. Like these patients are younger than mom and dad, dare I say? <laughs> Don't listen, mom and dad, but they are. And I mean, I guess maybe that is also a reflection of like, perhaps the older, older patient, not mom and dad, would not be considered for transplant. So they never would have been referred to the center in the first place. Makes sense. Okay. I gotcha. All right. Anyway, what did they find? So that primary endpoint, which again was a composite of death from any cause, implantation of an LVAD or urgent heart transplant occurred in six, which was 6% of patients in the ablation group compared with 19 or 20% in the medical therapy alone. This was a hazard ratio of 0.29 and was pretty impressive. You know, some of the other things, the one year cumulative mortality was 4% in the ablation group versus 14% in the medical therapy group. Uh, the two-year mortality was 6% in the ablation group versus 23% in the medical therapy group. A number of secondary outcomes, you know, thinking about some of the complications from the procedure, uh, there were four procedure-related complications that were really related to vascular access. And this occurred in three patients in the ablation group and one in the medical therapy group. Yeah, this is wild. Like this is a miracle, like call the Pope because um, there might be like a saint we should call here because uh, that's a 14% absolute risk reduction. Uh, I don't even think parachutes are that good. Anyway, okay, before I get too excited, what were the limitations? Yeah, I mean, the numbers are impressive. I guess we should acknowledge that this was a small randomized control trial done at a single center. We don't have the long-term data, but I mean, it's a pretty impressive short-term uh, survival benefit. So I think otherwise, it was a pretty well done randomized control trial. Yeah, that, the only thing I can see here exactly is it's small and anything that's unblinded you worry about. But when your outcome is like death, insertion of an LVAD or heart transplant, like there can't be any misclassification of those outcomes. And it, it's interesting too, like, you know, you mentioned that there, there was crossover and also not everyone in the ablation group actually got ablation. So what that means that this is actually under estimating the effect estimate, which is pretty wild. Anyway, okay, take home point. I think the take home here is that in patients with symptomatic AFib and end-stage heart failure, ablation led to lower composite of death from any cause, need to have an LVAD, or need to undergo urgent heart transplant compared with medical therapy alone. Totally. Practice changes. I mean, I think probably what we need to see is another study that replicates these results. But otherwise, this is a pretty impressive finding. And I mean, I guess it does go along with what we know from the heart failure symptomatic AFib population who is not end stage. And so it, it does fit. But I think you know, I don't make decisions around heart transplant. I think what this does remind me though, is that with the more advanced complicated heart failure patients who are coming in and out of hospital, they need to be connected with cardiology because, and, and probably in particular, they need to be connected with a heart function specialist uh, so that they can then help decide when do we pull the trigger on referral for transplant considerations. Yeah. And I think obviously access to ablation if I'm in Sault Ste. Marie, it is impossible. But even when I'm at Mount Sinai, like getting uh, a cardiologist to see a patient um, who does ablation, like their wait times are so long. So for me, I think this is super practice changing. I think it'll be hard to get another randomized trial even past the REB in this space because they had to halt it early because of clear benefit. But in principle, I agree with you that, you know, two RCTs are nice, but Anyway, this is a pretty cool study.
Oh, and speaking of Sault Ste. Marie, they are still sponsoring the show, which is impressive. It's our longest standing sponsor. So John, obviously you are done residency and you've been done for a while, but they're hiring specialists, subspecialists. You know, if you're a fully licensed physician, there are jobs in the Sioux. So, you know, reach out to me on Twitter or email me if you want to learn more. And then we have multiple electives for family medicine trainees as well as internal medicine trainees to come up spend a few days or spend a yeah few that's days. really important and i think the, the thing that always impresses me about your stories coming back from sault st marie is that like you keep in touch with the docs in sault st marie like you guys go for coffee and hang out like it just seems like there's a really good group of physicians and nurse specialists that you work with totally substitute coffee for beer um and hang out with golfing but yep that's exactly right ton of fun anyway okay so next up we'll stay on the afib train this study was entitled a safety of switching from a vitamin k antagonist or a doac uh, to a doac pardon me in frail older patients with afib results of the frail af study and this was published in circulation in august of 2023 excellent okay what was the research question here among frail older adults with AFib who are on warfarin, stable on warfarin, is it safe to switch them to a DOAC? Oh boy. I wonder if I'm going to have to change my practice after the study. This is a really important question to answer um, because I think a lot of us are already, we already think we know what the right answer is, but tell us, why is this an important question? We see patients with AFib all the time on GIM. I'm on service right now, and I would say maybe like 20% of my patients on my team have atrial fibrillation. We know that DOACs are superior to warfarin among adults with, you know, sort of like new AFib, recently diagnosed AFib, especially in older adults if they're not very frail. But how about in older frail adults, and especially if they've been on warfarin for years, should we switch or should we stay the course? Okay, great. Excellent study concept. What was the design here? Multicenter pragmatic open-label, investigator-initiated randomized trial. We'll use the PICO framework to break down the study. Uh, population, uh, adults 75 and older who had AFib were frail and on warfarin. They excluded individuals who had a GFR less than 30 or those with valvular AFib like severe MS or mitral valve repair. And by severe MS, Really, I mean mitral stenosis, but I don't think too many neurologists listen to our show. Intervention, a switch to DOAC. The doctor could pick whatever one they want. And I should mention that initially they said sort of switch to DOAC once the INR is sort of less than two. But then after 100 patients were randomized, they realized, oh, actually, there's a bit more bleeding in that scenario. So why don't you wait until their INR is less than 1.3? Or they got randomized to continue warfarin and target that INR of two to three. The outcome was bleeding, major bleeding in particular, within 12 months, and the follow-up occurred more or less every two months or so until the one-year mark. They analyzed their data using intention to treat with the goal of recruiting 1,250 patients to each arm, uh, but that did not occur, and I will explain why soon. Okay, great. Uh, what was table one? So uh, from 2018 to uh, 2022, they screened 2,600 patients and 1,300 were randomized. The mean age was 83 years, 40% were women, um, half had permanent AFib, and the frailty characteristics were often related to ambulation, memory impairment, uh, hearing impairment. The average CHADS-VASC score was 4 
and the baseline characteristics were relatively well balanced. Importantly, the rates of concurrent antiplatelet use were balanced between the two study arms. Okay, great. So, drumroll please, what was the main result? So, the trial was stopped early for futility. So, another trial of early stopping but this was not a miracle. We are not going to call the Pope. How come? There was a higher rate of bleeding in the DOAC arm. So we're talking an absolute risk of 15%, 1-5% compared to 10% with warfarin. That's almost a 5% absolute risk increase. Whoops. And a 70% relative risk increase. A lot of the bleeding was GI or urogenital. They also looked at the uh, you know event rate for clotting, and the hazard ratio was pretty similar. So no clear benefit from being on a DOAC. You might be wondering, well, what DOAC did they pick? Half it was rivaroxaban, uh, one fifth was apixaban, ten percent was dabigatran, which I hate dabigatran, but how oh well? And then the other sort of one fifth was a doxapan. Pretty good adherence, so ninety percent adherence for the study arms, and for the warfarin group. Their time in INR range was 70%, which is, you know, similar to other clinical trials in this space. Huh. Okay. So not great when it comes to using a DOAC. Uh, what were some of the limitations here? So this was an unblinded study. And we do know that in real life and in pragmatic trials, you are more likely to report adverse events from newer agents because you're paying attention. It's some newer drug, right? Like if somebody gets diarrhea on warfarin, on warfarin, um, on metformin, no one's going to write it up. No one's going to do a study about it. But if you find, you know, these GI symptoms and they're on an SGLT2 or something else, you're just more likely to report that. Uh, another limitation is that uh, the trial did end early. I mean, appropriately so, but we know that when trials end early, you're just more likely to find spurious results. I do wonder a little bit on the generalizability piece, and maybe I'll go into this later, but I sort of see people on Twitter kind of losing their mind and saying, oh my gosh, for frail older adults, we should just not be using a DOAC. And I don't think that's the question that the study answered. It makes me think a lot about why was there a higher rate of bleeding with DOAC? And I don't know, like what's going through your mind right now, John? And then I'll I've been thinking about this a lot, so I'll shed my thoughts, but I don't want to bias you. Yeah. I mean, I guess like there's some details to consider. I think I, I want to respect bleeding in general, but like, you know, were these severe bleeds? Presumably the ones that were most important were, you know, needing a transfusion or having to be hospitalized because of a bleed. I mean, I guess I always wonder about things like renal function and you know, is that contributing given what some of the DOACs that were being used in this patient population were, which might have then led to concerns around like supratherapeutic uh, levels and dosing? But I, I don't know. Yeah. What were some of the things you were thinking about? Yeah. And you're totally right. But, you know, the hard part with, you know, it couldn't be from renal function. This is a randomized trial. Renal function should be about the same between the two, right? So maybe it's like, drug interactions. So in the DOAC arm, you know, by design, if you're in the DOAC arm, you might get some drug interactions because you're a DOAC that lead to bleeding. Whereas in the warfarin arm, well, you're on warfarin and there's less interactions with warfarin. But again, drug interactions are rare. So then I thought maybe it's monitoring. Like, you know, when grandma is getting warfarin, she has to have her INR checked. So maybe they can do a better job of like keeping her in range. However, that doesn't explain why the early randomized trials of, you know, DOAC versus warfarin showed that DOAC is superior. So 
what I'm wondering instead is that maybe it's this concept of depletion of susceptibles. What is that? Yeah. So, you know, if you've been on warfarin for like three years, by design, you tolerate warfarin. Your body likes warfarin. Maybe you have some fancy genetic stuff, blah, blah, blah. I don't freaking know, but your body likes it. So when you are then randomizing people who've been on a drug for years, that is a different population than the individuals who are now newly starting on apixaban. No one in the apixaban arm had the requirement that you must be stable on apixaban for the last three years, right? So we know that the risk of bleeding occurs soon after starting an agent. So I wonder if in the warfarin arm, there were just less people susceptible to the endpoint. Because anyone who bled from warfarin, they would have stopped it. Anyone who died from warfarin from an intracranial hemorrhage, they wouldn't have been included. So you have a little bit of a different risk inherent to the fact that you have people who've been on an agent for a long time versus switchers, if that makes sense. And then do you think, I mean, you mentioned that the trial then had to change their design around when to then start the DOAC based on the INR. Uh, Did that play a role at all here? I don't think so, because that was done after the first 100 patients, and this was a 1,300-person randomized trial, right? So if instead they didn't make that change to the 1,000-person mark, then I would have said, oh, well, maybe that's what it's related to. So I I don't know. I mean, I can't think of a better uh, explanation than the sort of this depletion of susceptibles. You know, another example of like depletion of susceptibles is that I don't know, you're doing some randomized trial and you want to include people who've been on some drug for a long time compared to switching to some new agent. And maybe your outcome is anaphylaxis. Well, guess what? The people in your arm that were on this drug for two years, their risk of anaphylaxis from another dose of that same drug is close to 0%. But with the newer drug, you don't have that condition in place. So obviously we're going down a rabbit hole and maybe all the listeners have fallen asleep by now. But that's what I wonder if that's what's going on here. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, What's your take-home point? So the take-home point, it is a bad idea to switch grandma from warfarin to a DOAC if grandma's been stable on it for years. That's a mistake. This trial has showed us that's a mistake. Now, if it is a de novo new start warfarin versus a pixaban in a frail older adult, this study does not answer that question, right? Go back to the Aristotle trial published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2011. In that study, the average age of patients was, I am Googling it, was like mm, 70 years old, okay? So that is the study to decide among older adults with a new start. But switching, it seems like switching is a bad idea. Okay. Uh, I think I know the answer, but practice changing? Yeah, it is. It is because I think I often would have been like, hey, switch to the apixaban, you know, let's get her going and get some more free time back. Whereas now I think, uh, nope, that's a mistake. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I'm going to have to rethink my practice too. Yeah. And it also makes me wonder a little bit, like I I can think of some patients in particular who they're older, frail, and like getting their INR check, it's like a social visit for them. Right. So I also kind of wonder, I wonder if there's like, I don't know, increased rates of depression or anxiety when people switch from warfarin to dark. Because like, where did that interaction go? It's gone, you know? Uh, anyway, who knows? Well, it's an interesting point though, because yeah, you you have to be able to like mobilize somewhat to get to the INR clinic. And so if you're just on your DOAC, maybe by virtue of that, you're more relatively housebound than the warfarin patient is. So I don't know. 
Yeah, fair. Okay. Anyway, John, uh, what do you have for us for good stuff for today? Oh, yeah. Good stuff for today. Uh, Shout out to the Canadian men's basketball team. They qualified for the Olympics. And a little bit of a shout out to Scarborough as well. Down the road, I don't think I knew this growing up, but the captain of the Canadian men's uh, basketball team, uh, Kelly Olenek, he uh, lived uh, like a couple streets away from us, Mike. I don't know if you knew him as a kid or not, but... (laughs) For sure. Absolutely. Because I was two years older than him. So in like grade four, uh, I was taller than him. And now he's like six foot 10. And I am, I'm six feet if like, I have an inch under me. Yeah, (laughs) platforms with platforms. Yeah, platforms. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I did, I did know that fun fact. Um, Good stuff on my end is um, trial files, which I told you about last time where we use, you know, chat GPT to summarize trials relevant to GIM. We've created a new one called Thrombo Trial Files. And this uh, episode's all about AFib. So we'll put the link in the show notes, come out twice a month. And essentially what we do is we have this cool program called Paper Scrape. It finds randomized trials now relevant to docs who are you know, looking after patients with clots or prescribing blood thinners, and then uh, summarizes practice changing randomized trials, as well as throwback trials across a variety of journals. Excellent. Check it out. Check it out. Exactly. Oh, and also if you're listening and you're still listening, take a second and give us five stars. If you like our show on whatever platform you're listening to, if you don't like our show, then just go call me and tell me you don't like it. Okay. Don't give us a one star, um, but help us to spread the word on our podcast. You know, we're almost at the uh, 10 year anniversary for rounds table. So take a minute and do that now. Thank you kindly. All right, John, that's it for me. Yeah, that sounds good. You know, I'm trying, I think how we count our episodes has changed a bit over the years, but this might be like episode like 74, 75 or something like that, which is uh, pretty good. Let's keep on going. Yeah. I think you and I took over four years ago or something like that, yeah. but all right, cool, man. All right, cool. Good, good talking to you. Thanks, Mike. listeners. Yeah, always a pleasure, John. Take care in Calgary. Talk later. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also, thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor in chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support.